Well, our sermon text today is John chapter 10, verses 11 through 18. That's on page 1062 of your Sanctuary Bible, if you'd like to follow along. John chapter 10, verse 11 through 18. And I want to say a few words of introduction. I want to talk about the Gospel of John in maybe a slightly different way than we're used to. One, we obviously understand it as the story of the life of Jesus, and not just his life, but his death and resurrection and what he did to save the world. Um, And we also understand that the Gospel of John is in some real interesting ways quite different from the three other Gospels that we have, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those three have some similar themes and similar, although, although they're different in ways, and they share a similar source that John doesn't seem to share. At least this is what Bible scholars think. And John has language in it that's quite different from the other Gospels. It's a little more poetic at times. And I want to maybe encourage us to think of the Gospel of John today as great literature. Not just God's revealed word, which it is. Not just this story of salvation, which it is. Uh, but it has these soaring heights, like John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he sent his Son into the world to redeem the world, right? Now, um, we, don't, we get a little suspicious when we start thinking about the Bible as literature sometimes, right? Because then maybe that means we're downplaying that it's inspired. But, but let's not do that. Let's say it's also, it's great, it's inspired, it's from the Holy Spirit, it's, it's all that, it's true. But why can't something that's inspired and true also be lovely? Why can't it have incredible symmetry inside of it? Why can't it have some really great movements inside of it? So one of the things that John does is he likes to explore what are called dualities. They're sort of an either or or this against that. So just to give you an example, John talks about light, but then he talks about darkness. And those things often go together. Or he talks about the truth. Or he'll talk about lies, and he'll talk about the interplay of those things. Or he'll talk about blindness versus being able to see something. And he'll play with those things and see how they go together. And so he'll do that, and he'll also, he won't do that exclusively within one paragraph. He'll have overlapping dualities within one paragraph. Are you getting excited about this, as excited as I am? I hope you are. I mean, this is really interesting stuff. It's poetic. It's literary. It's got a lot of great character to it. It's like a very fascinating You're Like, well, what's he doing here? He's weaving together all these concepts at the same time, in the same breath. It makes it more complex. It makes it more nuanced. Now, here's something that we don't always get, is that just because he deals in dualities, like light and darkness, it's not as simple as saying light is good and darkness is bad. I mean, we understand that to be true. But he works with those things so that they're not just these polar opposites all the time, always opposed to each other. But there's this idea that Jesus is the light of the world who enters the darkness of the world to illuminate the darkness. So that we see that the thing that's in duality are are not kept separate. But the, the good thing is always penetrating into the bad thing. So light is always going into darkness and illuminating it. Truth is always going into falsehood and exposing it, right? And flesh, or that God is going, God is, as God in his person, is going into the flesh, the flesh of the world, to redeem it. So God is going into, goodness is always going into badness to engage with it and to bring about some change in it. It's not as simple as saying these two things are opposite and always separated. No. 
For John, the good is always trying to penetrate the bad and bring about some kind of change to it, some kind of redemption. One of the most, I guess, uh, stunning passages in the Bible, uh, and this, this just go, goes to show what it looks like, Darkness is considered a bad thing in John. Darkness is where evilness, men's deeds are evil, so they walk in darkness. And um, John 13.30, this is the story of the Last Supper. This is what it says. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, you know the story about Judas being handed a piece of bread by Jesus to indicate that he was the one who was going to betray Jesus. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out. And then this short sentence in our Bible, and it was night. This is sort of the turning point in the Last Supper right there. And it was night. From that point on, darkness descends on everything. Judas goes out to betray Jesus. Jesus goes out to the garden. The people come and they, they arrest Jesus. There's some violence. And there's this deep valley. I mean, talk about uh, these sort of echoes of even Psalm 23. There's this dark valley that gets traversed. And the, the depth of it is the cross, this darkness. But then on the other side comes out, and you're prepared a table in the presence of my enemies. Think about Jesus with his disciples at table with the man who was going to betray them all. Isn't this interesting? It's kind of how the Bible is kind of connected all together like this. And yet here darkness is descending on the world, and the Son of God and his glory is going to be humiliated and betrayed and crucified and tortured to death. And it seems that darkness reigns supreme. And yet on Easter morning, light emerges and shines out of this empty tomb and everything changes. So for John, it, that kind of gives you a picture of, yeah, there's light, yeah, there's darkness. But it's not as simple as that. For, for John, light gets consumed, it seems, by darkness. And yet it peeps out on the other end and emerges in this brilliance. Okay. Um, I'm excited. I'm excited. Uh, the passage that we're going to look at today is a contrast between what Jesus calls the good shepherd. And the contrast with the good shepherd is the hired hand. The good shepherd and the hired hand are different people. The good shepherd is good because he lays down his life for the sheep. Because he calls his sheep by name and they know his voice. But the hired hand doesn't do any of that stuff. The hired hand runs away as soon as danger appears. And he doesn't care about the sheep as much as he cares about himself. So listen as we read. Listen for that contrast between the good shepherd and the hired hand. But as we read, I want you to listen for some hints that God is redeeming his world through his son, the good shepherd. And yet even is open to the hired hand being redeemed by the good shepherd. So let's take a look at that. And our reading is John 10, 11 through 18. This is Jesus speaking. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. 
The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would add your blessing to it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you heard that story I told the children uh, about this trip I took to Israel when I was in seminary. It was 1994. I went there with my classmates and one of our professors, and we got to see this really dramatic enactment of what a shepherd looks like there. When I was a kid, I always had these, this sort of artwork, like the little books, and the shepherd, the shepherd was always well-dressed, kind of had this kind of stripy robe on with a, sort of a hat or a turban, and he had this long crook, and he was kind of reclining under a tree, and there's this beautiful verdant meadow with the little lambs sort of prancing around on it, and it just seemed kind of bucolic and nice and and tame, right? You know, that was my, that, so that was the good shepherd. He had a pretty easy job. But then when I saw this little Bedouin boy on the cliff edge with his goats and sheep all arrayed up and down this cliff edge, and he was wearing what amounted to like flip-flops. He wasn't wearing really nice shoes. He didn't have hiking boots on, but he was so sure-footed, and so were his animals. And you can just imagine, though, that an animal could get lost way down there, and he'd have to reach down and pull it up. Or he'd have to throw a rock down there to get its attention so that it would look up and figure out where the rest of the herd was. And they did hear his voice. He was talking to them the whole time. He was kind of talking to them and, and, and saying nice words to them in, in, in Arabic, I'm sure. I'm not sure what he was saying, but I hope it was good words. And, and they were slowly, uh, they were grazing, but they were slowly making their way up, up the mountainside. And I thought, this is like the fifth gospel. They say going to the land of Israel is like, the land is like the fifth gospel because you experience things like this and you go, oh, that's what it was like. So when Jesus talks about being a good shepherd, it's not that he sits under a tree and watches the sheep. It means he risks something for his sheep. It means this is a dangerous world and he's with them in this world and he's gathering them up along as they're feeding along this treacherous slope. That's what he means when he says, I'm the good shepherd. And you go, this is great. This is really exciting to have that kind of thing. So we look at chapter 10 of John, and Jesus says a few times, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He, he gathers them up when they're scattered. And to, to understand chapter 10, I want to go back just a little bit to chapter 9, because chapter 9 and chapter 10 of John go together. They're really one unit. There are some things that happen in chapter 9 that Jesus is now talking about in chapter 10. He's kind of giving context to what just happened in chapter 9. And just very quickly, what happens in chapter 9 is, is the disciples and Jesus are walking along and they find a man who was born blind. He was blind from birth. And the disciples asked this, what they thought was a deep theological question. Master, who was it that sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Because this was the thinking back then. If you had some physical disability back then, especially if you were born with it, then it was, must be some result of sin, generational sin of some sort. Now, it's kind of an absurd question when you think about it, because how could he have sinned to be born blind? How do you sin before you're born? You don't really. So even the question itself wasn't quite that smart as they probably thought it was. But Jesus' answer is great. He says, at least in this case, he says, this man wasn't born blind because of sin of his own or his parents, 
but that God's glory might be revealed in this moment and what's happening about, about to be happening here. And what's about to ha happen is one of the great signs of Jesus and the duality that we see between blindness and seeing and darkness and light. And so Jesus enacts this duality and, and light coming into darkness by putting some mud on this man's face, telling him to go and wash. The man goes and washes, he opens his eyes, and he can see. And this causes quite a buzz because people are like, well, how did this happen? This is amazing. We know this guy. Although he looks a little different, maybe because his eyes are open or something. Isn't this the guy that was born blind? How is it that now he can see? The Pharisees got really concerned about this story because it happened on the Sabbath, and we can't heal on the Sabbath. That's not good. That's work. And so they start to ask this man questions. What happened? Well, you know, this man did this for me, and it was pretty amazing. And, and then they're, they're not really satisfied with that, and so they ask his parents, what happened? Now his parents knew, and it says in the text, that if anyone confessed that Jesus was the Messiah or confessed that Jesus was the Savior, that they would be thrown out of the synagogue, that they would be put out of the fellowship. And that was a big deal. To be thrown out of fellowship like that had a lot of problems going around with it. it you would lose a lot of your other social connections if you were thrown out of the synagogue. And so his parents were really spineless in a way. They said, well, he's old enough. Ask him. He's old enough. You can ask him yourself. And so the Pharisees, because uh, they were afraid of being thrown out of the synagogue. And so the Pharisees find the, find the man again and say, how did this happen? He said, I already told you. Why do you, why do you want to hear it again? Uh, do you want to become his disciples too? Which they did not like. That made them very angry when he said that. And, and it only got worse and worse and finally the man said, look, I know that he healed me, and he couldn't have healed me unless he was from God. This man must be powerful. He must be from God. And at that point, the Pharisees kick him out of the synagogue. They, they excommunicate him, in essence. They, it says they cast him out. And um, so now just imagine this man, in the course of a day, was blind, just like every other day of his life, becomes a seeing person and begins to participate in society again for just a few brief minutes or hours. But then when he has to give an answer for how it was that he began to see again, he loses a lot of social connections because he's, by telling the truth about what happens, he's thrown, in, he's thrown out of the synagogue. And so it was quite a day for him. In verse 35 of chapter 9, Jesus re-enters the story, and it's only when he hears that this man has been thrown out. It's only when he hears that there's a lost sheep to be found. So here Jesus finds him, and this man has this encounter with Jesus where he understands that Jesus is the Son of Man. So Jesus heals a blind person, and then he, this blind person has some problems in the course of his day. And when Jesus finds that he's been thrown out, cast out, scattered out... Then he comes and finds him again. And he begins this other relationship with him. That one that's going to have to sustain this man because he's now been cast out of the synagogue. Now, chapter 9 and chapter 10 together kind of help fill in a gap for us that we're, we sometimes wonder about, which is who is the intended audience of John's gospel? Who was this written to? And based on these two chapters and other evidence that we have, there's a pretty good chance that among the many audiences or people who were intended to receive this gospel are Jewish Christians who have been expelled from their synagogues. So I'm going to say that again. The, the, the intended audience of John's gospel was likely 
Jewish Christians who had been expelled from their synagogue. All right? uh, the synagogue before around 70 AD was a very open place in some, in some places. There were very, very many sects of Jewish um, faith. There were the ultra-nationalists, sometimes we call them the zealots. There were the Sadducees, there were the Pharisees, there were, and then there were those who followed Jesus. And the first Christians really weren't thought of as that, all that different. They were thought of as Jews who happened to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, but they still had the same scriptures. They had the Old Testament, and they would read them, and they would participate in worship at the synagogue. Now, you can imagine the synagogue was then somewhat of a diverse place. It was kind of an interesting place, like because there would be all these different groups. In 70 AD, the Jews lost a war of rebellion against the Roman Empire, which is kind of inevitable. And the temple was destroyed. And because of some changes that happened with that, many of the other sects of Judaism diminished in their power and their influence. The Sadducees, because they were connected with the temple worship, kind of lost a lot of their footing. The nationalists lost almost all their footing because they were rounded up and, and killed by the Romans, so they, they had very little voice left. And what was left were the Pharisees, and the followers of Jesus. And the Pharisees began to assert control over the synagogue movement. And they began to insist that everybody who comes to synagogue recite a certain oath three times a day. And um, it was sort of like um, in the 50s in this country, school teachers had to sign pledges that they weren't communists. I don't know if anybody remembers that. Uh, my, uh, my there was a woman from my school district who went all the way to the Supreme Court because she wouldn't sign an oath saying that she wasn't a communist. And she, this was in the 50s. Virginia Elfbrandt versus the Amphitheater School District. And she won. She said, I'm not a communist, but I don't need to sign a document telling you that I'm not a communist to teach your kids. She just didn't like the idea of signing the document. And it, it came to be understood that you don't have to sign that. Uh, and you can't disqualify people from teaching because they're communists. You can't do that. So anyways, but this is what was happening. In the synagogue, the Jews, the devout Jews, were asked to recite this prayer or this set of oaths. And the one, one of them, there were 19 of them, 18 or 19 of them, and the 12th one was called the Birkat Haminim, which was the blessing upon the heretics. But blessing didn't mean blessing, it meant cursing. They didn't say blessing because it was kind of euphemistic. Sometimes Hebrew is like that. It, it uses the word blessed instead of curse, like it does in Job when Job's wife tells him, just bless God and die. What she really means is, curse God and die. You know, it's, it's, you, can't say bless, you can't say curse God, so she says bless God. And we do this in English. Sometimes we can be really rude by being extremely polite. Uh, has this ever happened to you? Like if somebody said, we would just love it if you were to come to our party. We would not be the same without you there, you know. And you'd think, that didn't feel good. That, that, that was a little too polite. Maybe they don't want me to come to their party. <laughs> but they had to ask, you know. So it's kind of like that, that you had the bless, blessing of the apostates or the heretics. But this is actually how the vow went. Let the Nazarenes, which is the Christians, that's, what, that's how they called the Christians, let the Nazarenes and the Minim, the heretics, be destroyed in a moment. So in the synagogue, you had to say this prayer three times a day. And it was thought that a true Christian would never say that prayer. They would never call down God's destruction on themselves. And so the synagogue became a place where Christians were excluded. 
They had to form churches. They had to form their own societies. They had to form their own movements. But nonetheless, here John's gospel is written to these people who are in transition, who are a bit homeless, spiritually speaking, who have been sort of victimized and pushed out of the margins of their worshiping community. And here's the word of hope to them. Now, can you imagine how this sounds, right? To somebody who had lost their church, um, or their small group, or their family, because when you get kicked out of the synagogue, you lose a lot of social connections, too. You could even lose connections to your parents. In fact, that's what Jesus says. Remember, he says, I've come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it was already kindled. I've come to separate brothers from each other, and mothers-in-laws from daughters-in-laws, and all that sort of thing. That's what he's talking about. Following him has this social cost, which is huge. And that's still true for some people. I mean, I have a friend who became a Christian. His parents were both atheist um, college professors in New England. So you can imagine how that went. You know, when he came home and said, I've become a Christian. That was not a fun day for that family, you know. It's kind of in reverse, right? Can you imagine the Christian family and their kid comes home and says, I'm an atheist? That doesn't go very well either, right? But this was really funny. Like, what are you saying? You're a Christian now? And... Um, he said to me, he said, Hans, Eric, I, here I, I found something that was really life-giving to me and, and re I was really excited about it. And I came home and I told my family about it and I was really surprised at their reaction. They did not like it. <laughs> um, so there's a social cost to following Jesus and there's this pressure to disown anyone who's kicked out of the synagogue. And so the shepherd, the good shepherd here in John 10 says... I am looking for my sheep who have been scattered, and I call them by name, and they know me, and I lay down my own life to protect the sheep from the wolves. Now, this is not a promise that these people are going to be restored to the synagogue or have, even have relationships with their family brought back together again. That's not the promise that Jesus makes here. To follow Christ is to follow somebody who gathers the scattered and finds the blind and raises somebody from the dead but when you're a Christian, you're not safe. You're found. And that's the important duality that maybe we have to look at today. When you're a Christian, you're not safe. But you're found. You're gathered. You're called by name by somebody whose voice you hopefully recognize. I want to talk a little bit about, as I mentioned, this duality in this particular passage, now that we know kind of why this is all being said, is to comfort people and gather people who are scattered. Who is the hired hand? In this story, there's this contrast between the hired hand and the good shepherd. So the hired hand is not the shepherd. It says he doesn't own the sheep. He's a temp, but not a full employee, if you will, right? Uh, he's a renter, but he's not an owner, if you want to use that language. We, we live in a, a sort of a housing complex that has a homeowners association, and we rent we used to own, but we sold our house, and now we, now we rent, which kind of feels good. And so we go to the swimming pool, and one of the questions people always ask when they meet each other at the swimming pool is, do you own or do you rent? And so they say, do you own or do we rent? And we say, we rent. And they say, oh, well, we own. That means you can't vote at the meetings. And I say, that's right, and we like it that way. This sounds like a good deal for us. We just come and use the pool, you know? So we rent, they own. But... As far as the good shepherd is concerned, the good shepherd owns the sheep. They're his sheep. The hired hand doesn't own the sheep. He's just hired to watch them. And so there's nothing at stake for him. He doesn't care about them as much as he cares about his own skin. And so it says, when the wolf appears, 
the hired hand runs like crazy. He's just out of there in no time at all. So that's the distinction. He saves his own life because it's more dear to him than his own. Do you remember how these dualities aren't always so simple, though? Right? We could say, well, the good shepherd's good because his name is good. But he's good because of all these other reasons he lays down his life. And the hired hand is just kind of a bad guy. Let's look down on the hired hand. This is a problem person here. It's not that simple in John, because John is complex. It's a literary masterpiece. And so there's something that's going to happen to the hired hand somewhere later in John that's going to make us scratch our head a little bit and go, oh, what's happening here? This is exciting. This passage is foreshadowing a later chapter, chapter 18. John uses foreshadowing. All good literature uses foreshadowing, right? John foreshadows chapter 18 in this chapter. And there, some of the roles are reversed. Chapter 18 is how Jesus is arrested and taken to the high priest's house, and Peter denies him. That's part of chapter 18. But in chapter 18, there's some roles are different in a sort of a poetic way. So in chapter 18, Jesus is the sheep because he's the lamb of God that's about to be taken and sacrificed. Do you all get that? So he's the sheep in a way. And the one who runs away when the wolves come for Jesus is Peter. Right? Think about that. He doesn't run away right away, but he does deny that he knows Jesus because he's afraid. He cares about his own life more than Jesus' life. And so he denies Peter three times. And the good shepherd is the apostle John. John is, <laughs> John, this is John's gospel. So he gets to make himself sort of the, the hero in this story, which is interesting, right? He's, and he never calls himself John. He calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. But we think that this is the Apostle John, the person who wrote this. So the good shepherd becomes John because John never leaves Jesus. John never leaves. In fact, he sticks with Jesus to the end, up to the cross. John and the women who followed Jesus were the only ones to stand at the foot of the cross while Jesus was being crucified. All the other disciples ran like crazy. And in, actually in chapter 18, verse 16, we read that John speaks on behalf of Peter. Sort of this calling out uh, somebody's name. So that Peter can come into the high priest's courtyard. And the, so the good shepherd calls out the hired hand, who's a lost sheep himself. So, so some of the roles, it's kind of hard to follow, but some of the roles are even changing mid-story. The hired hand is becoming a lost sheep himself. So then Peter, after he enters the courtyard, denies Jesus two more times, and he shows that he's a hired hand. And as I said, John stays with Jesus to the end. But here again, it's not so simple to say, well, John is a good disciple, and Peter is a bad disciple. He's the hired hand, and John is the good shepherd. Because Jesus still has some work to do for Peter after the resurrection. If you look at the very end of the gospel, chapter 21, in fact, it's past the point at which it seems like John's gospel should end. It seems like John's gospel should end at the end of chapter 20, but there's this piece left over at the end that ties this one problem together for us. Okay? If you look at uh, chapter 21, Jesus comes to Peter and says, you've been a hired hand, but I'm going to make you a good shepherd. He says to Peter, you know what? You need to feed my sheep. That's what a shepherd does, right? The shepherd feeds the sheep. Jesus says to John three times, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. One time for each of the times that Peter denied him. And it even wounded Peter, but in, in a sort of a healthy way, where, where Peter said, oh, that 
that really hurts that you're reminding me of this, but I need to own that so that I can go on. So then he tells them that as the good shepherd, he too will have to give up his life for the sheep. And Jesus predicts John's, uh, P- Jesus predicts Peter's death in chapter 21. So you're getting a kind of the grand scope of things here. Uh, this is a beautiful, literary, amazing, poetic, stunning work, which also happens to be inspired and tell the true story of Jesus. Now you may be saying to yourself, well, I'm, I sure I'm glad that my pastor loves the literary fine detail of John's gospel. What does that mean for me, right? What, what can I take home with me this week? There's a few things. First, I think it can just only bolster our confidence that our scriptures are true and amazing and inspired by God. Why do I say that? Because I don't think anyone, any human, could have made something this great up. I mean, there's a lot of talented uh, authors out there in this world, but I don't think a human being could have, could have created something with this scope. Only the Holy Spirit could have done this. So it tells me that things like the Gospel of John are true. And if they're true in that sense, they're true in all the other senses that they uh, want to be true or tell us that they're true. So it's inspired. So that's great. Have confidence in the Scripture. Second, I think it's important for us to remember that at our core, we are all scattered sheep. That's our role in this story. We're scattered sheep. And we've been expelled from our earthly home and our families because of the name of Jesus Christ. Now, it maybe doesn't feel that way. You may even be sitting here with your family, right? But as I said, to become a Christian is socially expensive for us in this country. In other countries, it's more than socially expensive. It's expensive with your life. It's expensive with your wealth. It's expensive with your safety. And so, in, in true reality, being a Christian is a, is a risky proposition in this world, and it's going to only get riskier, I think, So the good news for us, though, is that we have a good shepherd who gathers us. You could probably think that the reason we're here this morning is because we've been gathered by the good shepherd and brought together from our scattered places. And this good shepherd calls us by name in a voice we recognize. So what's important for us is that we continue to gather, to continue to be gathered by the shepherd. But also, I think we need to learn to recognize his voice. We need to know when he's talking. I think that's what discipleship is. It's understanding that it's Jesus who's talking to us when he tells us things. And then doing them. And then doing them. That's what a disciple does. Knows the master's voice and lives by the words that the master gives. Finally, I think it's also good to remember that at times we're like wolves and Pharisees that throw other people out. That's the world that sometimes we create for ourselves, and that's too bad. We need to be careful of that. And sometimes we're the hired hand. We run from danger. We care more about our own life. Jesus says this, I lay down my life of my own accord. He goes down dangerous cliffs. He goes looking for lost sheep. And he does that so that he can convert us into good shepherds too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you for your amazing gospel that you gave to your servant, John. Help us to live by it. Help us to know your son's voice as the sheep know the good shepherd. And we ask it in your son's name. Amen.